So um, I'm Becky. Some of you may have seen me around here before. I am very grateful to be back here at evening service. Uh, I had to preach this this morning in morning service and um, constantly would tell people that they only see me sometimes because I'm firmly in the camp of team evening service. Um, Y'all are my favorites. So, um, a while ago, Kevin asked me if I would like to, well, not a while ago, a couple weeks ago, I get this text from Kevin, and he says, hey, we're doing a series on Revelation. Do you want to preach one of the sermons? And immediately, without thinking, I text back, sure, sounds interesting. And then I read the scripture that Kevin assigned to me this day, and I'm pretty sure that there were some references to things like feet of burning bronze and fornication and a woman named Jezebel and something about striking her children dead. And about that time, I panicked and also thought, thank you, Kevin. So I'm going to go out on a theological limb here and just say that the book of Revelation, taken at face value, is a hot mess. Like, it's so difficult to comprehend. Like, I've read it twice. And the first time I read it, I was participating in a thing that my church was doing called Faith Comes by Hearing. And the church had purchased a number of audio versions of the New Testament, and all of us were committing to listen to the whole New Testament over a period of time together. And I, in my wisdom, chose the dra- dramatized version. So, When Peter talked, it was always the same person. When Jesus talked, it was always the same person. Sometimes you heard clip-clops of donkeys or marketplace noises. But by the time it got to Revelation, all of a sudden there was like choir singing and in the background. And it was crazy town. I mean, I was listening to this like deep British dramatic baritone reading about the sun being blotted out and blood red moons and, and stars falling from the sky and locusts with hair like women and plagues and pregnant women and beasts. And it was this wild and fantastic journey and I couldn't wait for it to be done. <laughs> I was over that. The second time I kind of went through the book of Revelation was about the time the Left Behind series came out. I don't know if any of y'all remember the Left Behind series, but they were sort of a fictionalization serial novels where they took the end times prophecies that they saw in Revelation and created this sort of like narrative as if it was happening today and this book was a, a, a logical and literal interpretation of this is exactly going to happen and this is exactly going to happen all up to the end times. I didn't really feel comfortable with that either, because this linear understanding of the book didn't seem to jive with the wild and fantastical thing that I had read before. But I also struggled with the idea that maybe it was just all allegory, or maybe just written for the people at the time when it was written. And I just struggled with this book. I just had nowhere to put it, nowhere to really get my teeth into it. And then I talked about it with my friend Margaret. Now, Margaret grew up in a very, like, intellectual Mennonite church, and she was a great reader, and she said, it's interesting, because I just read this book by an anthropologist taking on the symbology in the book of Revelation. And she said, this is what he said, in the middle of the time period that Revelations was written, a great natural disaster happened in the Mediterranean basin. Mount Vesuvius erupted. It started off in the afternoon with this earthquake, and then midway through the day, 
this huge plume of ash just spurted straight up out of the volcano. It went like 12 miles high in the air. And it spread ash for miles. It blocked out the sun, turned the sky dark, and it was raining down ash all around it. There are some areas of the hillside that had like 16 feet thick verse, uh, of ash that was just dropped on it like rain from the heavens. And then after a number of hours, this huge plume collapsed in on itself, causing these like pyroclastic flows to go down the mountainside. It was hot ash and pumice at about 1,300 degrees and going about 70 miles an hour, completely wiping out everything in its path. And she said that this anthropologist's argument was, That when John was talking to the people of his day, and he was talking about massive devastation, as you can see on this lovely picture in front of me, artist rendition, he wasn't there in 79 AD, I can promise you that. Um, That when he was writing about the destruction of all things or things being irrevocably changed, he was writing it in the language that they would have all understood. Because everybody in the Mediterranean basin would either have, have experienced a little bit of the after effects of this, of this, whether it was the sun being blotted out or looking through the ashy atmosphere to see a moon that suddenly seemed blood red. Or it would be something that they understood because they'd heard the stories of the thousands of people that perished in a heartbeat and cities like Herculaneum and Pompeii being completely wiped off the map. So when he was talking, he was couching this Armageddon in the visual language of the worst destruction anybody had ever known and evoking something that they could picture and they could understand. So this is true. Could it be that Revelation was meant to be a book that, while fantastical and full of wild imagery, was something that should have been able to resonate with its readers? So I look at this book, and I see it, it's so full of imagery, not just stuff that looks like Mount Vesuvius erupting, but it also ties to many of the books in the Old Testament. Over and over again, John uses language that ties back to the Old Testament prophets, like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. He nods to Jewish history, and he also brings up stories that play out in Kings and Exodus, And he also has this picture of Jesus as both Messiah and sacrificial lamb. So I tend to believe that Revelation, the revelation of Jesus, this book by John, is not necessarily a chronological narration of the end times. But instead, it is a book full of common echoes and recurring themes. A book that within its beautiful chaos has some through lines that make sense. If we look at it through the lens of the culture with which it was written and the vision and the understanding of its intended audience at the time, it would be something that is both timely for them and timely for us now. So if we look at it, there are some really interesting through lines that come through the entire book um, that resonate all throughout Revelation. For example, um, this book was written at a time in the Roman Empire where there had been some upheaval among the emperors. Nero had committed suicide, and then there was a year of four emperors where four emperors tried to take 
charge and each one kind of lost power. And then Vespasian came along and then he died and then his son came along and then his son was killed. And then his second son came, Domitian, and he was in power and had learned from what had happened before him and was determined not to let that be his fate. So he consolidated power. He rendered the Roman Senate obsolete, which meant that a lot of people were without the power that they used to have. He entrenched worship of gods, especially the god Apollo, which many said the Roman emperor was the living incarnation of Apollo. And he also was fiercely eradicating anybody who was standing against this, especially Christians. Revelation, this book by John, uses language that evoke early prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel when it talks about the empires that have been before, such as Babylon and Tyre and Sidon. And John paints this picture of this beast that is empire. He draws on these old prophets, and all throughout this entire book is the assertion that empires are not everlasting. They do not overcome all else. That even though they have power, even though they are the ruling system in the world as we see it, empires fall. The second theme that is woven all the way through this book is this book about the way, is a theme about the way of Christ. Christ is different, He's the antithesis to empire. He's not an emperor that rules by consolidating power or demanding allegiance or else. Instead, the way of Christ is not the way of empire. It is the, not the way of might or power. It's the way of sacrifice, of good news, and of love. And the early church would have been well aware of this symbology, for the Christ they worshipped was not a military leader, not the military leader that many expected as a Messiah. Instead, he came as a servant, and he allowed himself to be put to death on a cross. In this book, John paints Christ's sacrifice and those of the believers that stand with him, and they are what overcomes. At the beginning of the book of Revelation are seven letters, and these letters are no exception to the themology that we see throughout the book. They have in and through them woven these two ideas of empire and the way of Christ, and they have imagery that comes from the Old Testament, and they also have things that are very rooted in the culture that they're in. And the people of the early church would have seen themselves in this letter. They would have traced these through lines through the books as well. So looking at the cultural context, looking at the biblical history, we might be able to understand a little bit of what's going on in the letters and see what that means to us. And I'm really grateful for this possibility of this perspective and Margaret opening the door for me in this, especially given the letter that Kevin asked me to talk about today. It's not easy, and it's something we have to sit with. And so what I really want to do is read it to you in its entirety, like a letter, so you see what I mean, and you see what we have to wrestle with today. I think it's going to be on the screen so you can follow along, too, in case I miss a word. This is in Revelation 2, 18 to 29. Write this letter to the leader of the church in Thyatira. This is a message from the Son of God, whose eyes penetrate like flames of fire, 
whose feet are like glowing brass. I'm aware of your good deeds, your kindness to the poor, your gifts and service to them. I also know your love and faith and patience, and I can see you constantly improving in all these things. Yet this I have against you. You are permitting that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach my servants that sex sin is not a serious matter. She urges them to practice immorality and to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to change her mind and attitude, but she refused. Pay attention now to what I am saying. I will lay her upon a sickbed of intense affliction, along with all her immoral followers, unless they turn again to me, repenting of, her, of sin, their sin with her, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches deep within men's hearts and minds. I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. As for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan really, I will ask nothing further of you. Only hold tightly to what you have until I come. To everyone who overcomes, who to the very end keeps on doing things that please me, I will give power over the nations. You will rule them with a rod of iron, just as my father gave me the authority to rule them. They will be shattered like a pot of clay that is broken into tiny pieces. And I will give you the morning star. Let all who can hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So everyone clear on the meaning of this? Yeah, no. We have to wrestle with this. And to be quite honest with you, my inner progressive feminist Christian really has a very hard time with this scripture. I need to wrestle with it too. And so I'm going to apply the same thing that I've applied to the book, to this letter, and see if I can figure out a little bit about what's going on, what the theology is, and maybe we can see what some of the echoes are and how that pertains to us. And we can wrestle through some of this imagery that's very troubling. So let's start with the context a little bit and look at the context of Thyatira. This was a city that had been a military outpost for the Roman Empire. And thus, because it was a military outpost, it was very strong in the bronze trade and a thriving metropolis because of that. But as empires change and they grow and they develop, it no longer needed to be a military outpost, therefore no longer was the center of the bronze trade, and the city had to reinvent itself. So instead of being just a bronze city, it became a city that was setting itself up as a, a hotbed of commerce. And to do that, the city set up trade guilds. And the trade guilds were all associated with different gods, uh, like some of them were probably... Um, associated with Apollo, which was also sort of the patron god of the city. And as we remember from before, also the emperor was supposed to be sort of the living incarnation of Apollo. So this was kind of ingratiating with both the empire and um, sort of the panoply of, of gods. 
So in order for you to participate in commerce in the city, you had to be a part of a trade guild. So there were trade guilds for linen and trade guilds for wool and trade guilds for wheat and trade guilds for iron. Anything that you can imagine, there was a guild for that. And the guilds were probably very much like part trade union, part rotary club, um, part a place where we could trade ideas and best practices, but it also partly functioned as a place where the temple rituals to that particular god would have gone on. So when you started a trade guild meeting, they would have had some sort of sacrifice. Either it would have been a sacrifice of drink or a sacrifice of meat. And then there would probably be a feast where some of what you had sacrificed was consumed. And then there would probably be some sort of sexual orgy or something like that that was tied to the temple rituals that your particular god or patron of your trade guild was from. So in order to participate in the commerce system of Thyatira, the people had to participate in the guilds. And if they had to participate in the guilds, they had to participate in all of these things. So that's one set of contexts. Let's look also at the sort of scriptural ties, past Jewish history that we're seeing played out in this, in this letter as well. And that really centers around one word, Jezebel. Side note, I always mourned the fact that I would never be able to name a daughter Jezebel, because I think it's such a beautiful name, but it has such a horrible connotation. Nobody would appreciate that. Uh, so anyway, Jezebel. <laughs> one of the ways that, um, one of the places that Revelation, as a book, touches back on the Old Testament is in this story. There was a king of Israel, King Ahab, and he was basically the antithesis of everything that God wanted a king of his people to be. And one of the things he did was marry a woman from another culture, Jezebel, and absolutely turned a blind eye and tolerated when she brought back practices of worshiping her region's God into Israel. And in fact, she enticed him into participating with it. And this story that's in um, First and Second Kings is a wild story. Like, I would, I could preach an entire sermon on that alone, but unfortunately I don't have time to. Um, but I highly recommend you go back and read it, because it's insane. I mean, it has, like, confrontations with prophets and fire coming down from heaven and arranged murders and stolen vineyards and droughts and epic showdowns. And it ends with this prophecy that Ahab is going to have his blood licked up by animals and Jezebel is going to be trampled by wild horses and dogs are going to eat her flesh and all their offspring is going to be killed. And it freaking happens. It's a creepy, weird story. Things that you didn't know that were in your Bible. For 100, Alex. Um, <clears throat> how, so when John references Jezebel, he's referencing back to this story. And the people of that time would have seen and understood that what he's pointing out is a representation that has existed over time in the scripture. Jezebel represents the seduction away from God's calling and, a, and purpose and a prioritization of personal comfort and power. She represents compromising God's plan in order to have the things you want. She represents disassociating your role in God's kingdom from your everyday life. By naming Jezebel, John not only calls out the compromise and the seduction in this church, 
But he reminds the believers that this division of allegiance has consequences. And there's this conflict that is existing in the middle of this church in Thyatira that is echoed and seen in these two things. The believers of Thyatira, Thyatira were faced with this dilemma. They could be whole, integrated people whose faith forms all of their lives, who stand counter to their culture, but this would come at a cost. Their very livelihood, their ability to trade, support their households, would be in jeopardy. If they walked away from the guilds and the guild practices, it would cost them. As one theologian puts it, the problem which faced every Christian in Thyatira was whether they were going to make money or be a Christian. Many of them made a choice. They chose to disassociate their faith from their everyday lives. They continued to do good things. They cared for the poor. They were showing fruits of the Spirit like patience and faith. But they were tempted by an argument that convinced them that it was possible to follow God and participate in the guild rituals. It was likely one that sounded incredibly reasonable and even perhaps theologically sound. Sort of the idea that we know God is the one true God and Apollo slash the emperor is not real, therefore these rituals are meaningless. We can participate without threatening our faith. Plus, we give of what we have out of our love for Christ. If we didn't work, we'd be able to help the poor. If the people of Thyatira didn't participate, how would they survive and provide for their families? And somehow, someone in the church convinced people that the guild rituals were meaningless. It wasn't important. It was just business. They began to disassociate their faith from the business sphere of their lives. Christ was for the soul, was for eternity. The guild was for living. The through lines that we've seen throughout Revelation of empire and of the way of Christ weave in and through this letter too. Represented by commerce and trade and the guild rituals is empire. By choosing to participate, the believers in Thyatira were showing a divided loyalty Even though they were loving Jesus and trying to serve him on a personal level, they were prioritizing their participation in empire over the way of Christ. They became complicit in an unjust and unrighteous system for the sake of maintaining their privilege, their money, and comfort. We see them addressing the symptoms of the problems with their acts of service, but not addressing the source. It's implicitly saying that I believe that Christ was saved by eternal soul, but I trust more in the economy and empire to save my body. What is the way of Christ that we see in this letter that John calls us to? John was calling the believers at this church not to live such divided lives. In Christ, there isn't a separation between my private life, my faith life, and my work life. The very fact that Jesus, the Son of God, came as a human, being fully present here, shows that incarnation is paramount in the kingdom. Christ is not just the Savior of my soul, but the living God working in and through me in every aspect of my life. 
There's no separation between the eternity and present. There is no separation between religious pursuit or the secular marketplace. Christ is calling us to have integrated whole lives with Christ at the center of it all. John is also reminding us as believers that the way of Christ is different from the power structures around them. Jesus calls us to be counterculture and live the way of sacrifice and endurance. He's calling his people to choose a path that costs them, not just justify maintaining the status quo. He calls the church to repent of a personal religion and calls them to hold tight and endure. And those who do so will be given the morning star. In essence, he's saying, if you endure, Christ is your reward. So for, there's a lot of hefty imagery in this letter that doesn't necessarily resonate with our culture today. But the message behind this letter is something that I have to sit with and that we all have to sit with. The same struggles that the believers in Thyatira dealt with is one that we've seen in almost every generation of Christianity over the millennia. Privatizing our faith, separating our faith from certain areas of our lives has allowed us to justify all kinds of evils. Slavery, apartheid, persecution of other races. And we can still at the same time convince ourselves that we are following the way of Christ. It's easy for us now to look back at these people who have gone before and point out where they've missed it. But if we're honest, we too struggle with integrating Christ into every aspect of our lives, living wholehearted, counterculture lives. And this is where the sermon gets really tough for me. Like, I don't want to sit and preach at everybody where they've gone wrong. Like, I want to sit around a table and have a conversation where we ask each other where we are privatizing our faith, where we are choosing a way of privilege over the way of Christ. I want us to sit down and talk and call each other to something better. But I can't go to everyone's house for dinner tonight, unfortunately. So we have to wrestle here. I have enough church trauma from my past to not want to stand up and be the person who shames us into repentance. But the honest truth is, this letter brings us to a place where we're standing at the door of repentance. We do good things. We serve. We care for those around us. But there are places where we segregate our faith from our everyday lives we still implicitly and explicitly put our faith in systems that prioritize our comfort and security. We compromise and bargain with empires of our age, and all the time we convince ourselves it's okay. But it's not. There was an Anabaptist leader in the late 1600s, who was persecuted for calling the church to the same wholeheartedness. And he said this, no one can know Christ truly unless he follow him in life. I'm going to read this again. No one can know Christ truly 
unless you follow him in life. Christ calls us to be incarnational, to be fully present, not disassociated, removing our faith from other places. He calls us to be wholehearted, not segregate our faith. He calls us to be counterculture and not compromise with it. And too often we, and I very much include myself in this, we are willfully blind to to ways that this can play out in our lives. The message to this church in Thyatira echoes every time we justify maintaining our privilege. In reality, privatizing our faith, relegating it to just certain parts of our lives so that we can maintain our comfort and safety and our wealth and security runs counter to the way of Christ. What Jesus calls us to is costly. I won't pretend it's not. It's sacrificial. And we have to decide if Christ is worth that. Let all who can hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, we come before you today and we recognize that You are a loving and caring and compassionate God. But in the midst of that, you call us to a better way. A way of being whole and wholehearted. Of being fully present and being able to be you in every aspect of our lives. We ask that your spirit would just come and show us those places where we've compromised. Show us those places where we've separated our faith out from one sphere in our life. Show us how to be integrated and whole. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.